0: In the name of God. Amen. It's an audacious thing for a small group of people to decide to form a spiritual community in the way and following the teachings of Jesus. The forebears of St. David's decided to do just that. Back in 1896, they began meeting in one another's homes for prayer and mutual support. And a few years later, they organized themselves into an Episcopal mission under the wing of St. Albans Parish. They met in rented space for a time and then, through a gift from St. Albans, secured property and a small building which they renamed St. David's Chapel. And the community grew and built on that site until the District of Columbia in its wisdom condemned the property in order to widen the street. But the proceeds from the proceeds of the property's condemnation St. Alban strategically purchased on St. David's behalf this property on the corner of a new and flourishing residential neighborhood. It's an audacious thing for a group of people to decide, it's time to build a church. In 1940 and 41, the forebears of St. David's decided to do just that. And first, they must have dreamed of what could be. And then they had to organize and raise money. And there were a series of events that led up to the decisive moment to build, some within their control and most not. There were a series of decisions, no doubt, some small, others significant, that culminated in this stunning sanctuary where we are privileged to worship today. But remember, to quote the passage from 1 Peter, that they were living stones, Before they were a building, they were living stones, building between them and among them a spiritual home. That's what we celebrate, people coming together to be the body of Christ, called to love as he loves, forgive as he forgives, and serve as he serves. Now, for reasons both personal and vocational, I've been thinking a lot this past year about such decisive moments. Those those moments, whether in our individual lives or in our families, our faith communities, even as a nation, when we clearly come to a turning point or a change of course, or when we step up and claim an identity or a vocation, or we accept and even consciously embrace a circumstance that's been thrust upon us. Because unlike moments whose significance we only see in retrospect, these decisive moments impress their importance upon us as we're experiencing them. Because no matter how we got there, we no longer see ourselves, once we decide to act, we no longer see ourselves as being acted upon by whatever slings and arrows of fate. We are ones now with agency. And in that defining moment, we're not on autopilot anymore. We're not half engaged. You don't just half engage to build a church. We're, as they say, we're all in. We're shapers of our destiny now, and we are co-creators with God. For as the word itself suggests, in a decisive moment, we are... We're deciding something. Yes, I will join with this small band of people and gather in prayer. Yes, we will pool our resources and focus our efforts and build a church. Now, for me, the most interesting stories by far in the Bible are of people at these kinds of moments, these decisive moments, uh, whether as individuals or as a people. And, um, and the story of Jacob, which we heard read a few moments ago, is a great example of an individual's decisive moment whose effects ripple across time and space. And perhaps it's always that way. You may recall that Jacob was, by all accounts, a scoundrel. He had previously convinced his brother at a weak moment when he was really hungry to sell him his birthright in exchange for dinner. And then he tricked his dying father into giving him the blessing that his father intended to give to that same brother, Esau, which by then you might imagine that Esau was pretty angry with his brother, and Jacob fled to escape Esau's rage. And it was on that very journey of shame when he was running away that he had his now famous dream about a ladder climbing up to heaven. And in that dream, he heard God speak to him. And it wasn't a word, as you might expect, given all he had done. It wasn't a word of condemnation, but rather of lavish blessing, blessing for him. He didn't have to steal it from his brother. And with that blessing came a promise and an assurance that God would never leave him. I ask you, have you ever been on the receiving end of that kind of blessing or grace or kindness that you knew as you were receiving it that you didn't deserve? I can remember one such experience. It actually happened to me the first time I entered Washington National Cathedral. This was back in the late 1980s. I was a student at Virginia Seminary and I had heard that Archbishop Desmond Tutu was coming to preach and I wanted to hear him. This was, you may recall, at the height of the anti-apartheid movement when there were daily protests outside the South African embassy and Bishop John Walker was among those arrested on a regular basis. This was, this was a heady time, and I was in my 20s, and the cathedral that day was packed, and the excitement was palpable. And when Tutu rose to preach, he smiled his broad smile, and he looked out at all of us, and he thanked each and every one of us for how fervently we were praying for the people of South Africa and all that we were doing, each and every one of us, to end apartheid. And he went on and on. You have no idea, he said, how much your prayers and your efforts mean to us. You are our inspiration. And then he extended his hands in blessing. And I sat there embarrassed and ashamed because I hadn't once prayed for the people of South Africa. And I certainly hadn't done anything brave on their behalf. But after that first wave of shame passed over me, another feeling came. And I realized I wanted to be worthy of Desmond Tutu's gratitude. I wanted to be the kind of person to receive that blessing. I wanted to grow large enough inside myself to hold what he was so freely giving to all of us. And I left the cathedral, changed person. I wonder if something like that happened to Jacob when he woke up from his dream ladder. Whatever unworthiness he may have felt at first, whatever happened inside him, he stepped up to receive the blessing God had for him. And he resolved to live as one worthy of it. And that decision not only changed the course of his life, it changed the course of the people of Israel. He went on to suffer, endure suffering without complaint he eventually returned to reconcile with the brother he betrayed. He became one of the pillars, the spiritual pillars of ancient Israel. A decisive moment to receive an undeserved blessing. Of course, we can come to such moments through tragedy as well. I've just finished reading the most extraordinary memoir entitled... When Breath Becomes Air." It's written by a young neurosurgeon by the name of Paul Kalanithi, who near the end of his medical residency was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And with that diagnosis, the, the future he had imagined for his life, the one he was just about to realize, the culmination of all those years of striving, it just evaporated. It was gone. And I wonder. What would I do? What would you do if suddenly everything we had worked to accomplish or become was taken from us that suddenly? Severe illness wasn't life-altering for me, he said. It was life-shattering. It felt less like an epiphany, a piercing of light, and more like someone had just firebombed the path ahead of me, and I was going to have to work around it. But one decision he made, once performing surgery was no longer an option, was to write something he planned to do later in life. And what he wrote is extraordinary. All the more precious, given that he would only have one book to write. And another decision that he made, that he and his wife made together, was to have a child. His wife asked him, Don't you think saying goodbye to your child will make your death all the more painful? And he responded, wouldn't it be great if it did? In the time that they had left, they decided they weren't going to take the easy path. They weren't going to avoid suffering. They would carry on living in the face of his death. I began to realize, he said, that coming into such close contact with my own mortality had changed both nothing and everything. Before my cancer, I knew someday I would die. I didn't know when. After my diagnosis, I knew someday I would die. I didn't know when, but I knew it more acutely. And I've learned that there is no other way to live. Had he lived, he would have done, surely he would have done extraordinary things. But when diagnosed with terminal illness himself, he chose to write about the dying process from within. It's unusual in this country to die at age 36, he said. But, you know, dying isn't unusual. So let me tell you what it's like. That's what I'm aiming for. Not sensationalism, not exhortations to gather rosebuds, but simply, look, this is what's coming on the road ahead. And he described the terrain of it, step by step as he walked. And I wonder, in response to countless undeserved blessings or our inevitable mortality, I wonder if the most important decisions are the ones that we make every day, the little ones, the ones that inform how we spend our time, where we focus our energies, how we respond to the beauty and the heartache all around us because step by step those small decisions they put us on a path a way of living and being in the world and from time to time they culminate in a decisive way not only for ourselves but for those around us and for generations to come now the reason or one of the reasons i find myself thinking about these decisive moments the ones we make as individuals, and in community, and, and uh, as a species, is that I believe, as your bishop, that we are at such a decisive moment now. Uh, as a people, and, and a smaller yet important way, as those of us called to walk in the way of Jesus in this particular church, the Episcopal Church. And I'll leave the larger conversations about the nation and the species for another day. But in honor of your forebears who decided to be a community and to build this church, I'd like you to consider with me some of the things we face as a church. Because like you, I love the Episcopal Church. I love its worship, its sacramental worldview, its generous theology that engages Jesus, yet embraces the truths of science, opens us to the mysteries of other faiths. I love its appreciation of ambiguity, its intellectual curiosity, and understanding that doubt is evidence of faith with a pulse. And for years, for years, I felt a claim on my heart to do everything in my power that communities like this one, like St. David's, might learn to thrive in a culture and a world so vastly different than the one that surrounded it when our forebears built this church 75 years ago. Because I'd like more people to know and experience Christ through the treasured insights and expressions of this church. And every day I ask myself, what can we do now, right now, so that in five or ten or seventy-five years, we are stronger than we are now with greater capacity to fulfill the amazing vision god has entrusted to us and two of the things that occur to me are actually the very same things that your forebears did when they first came together as christian community the very same things first to create a culture of small gatherings in our homes in our homes for prayer, and for study, and for support through the joys and pains of life's passages. Some of the most successful, actually some of the largest churches in this country, organize themselves in precisely that way, as small communities of people gathering in one another's homes. And they engage not only themselves, but their neighborhoods. It's a way to take our own journey seriously, to commit to each other, and to engage those around us, and invite others in with life-changing potential. And we know how to do this as a church. It's, it's in your DNA. And second, to work in collaboration with other congregations, as St. David's did in the early days of its life with St. Albans. You know, most of our churches now function as if everything about their destiny rises and falls on them, their shoulders alone. Every single one of them, all 88 And having served as your bishop now for four years, I am convinced it's not going to work. That the challenges we face are bigger than any one congregation can face alone. The opportunities are greater, and the vision God has given us is way bigger than what any one congregation can realize on its own. And that's how we started. St. David's was in alignment with St. Albans that was also planting St. Patrick's and St. Columbus, and that little tiny church next door. Washington National Cathedral. We could do that again. We could, we could go back to the way we started, with our congregations sharing resources, sharing clergy, sharing staff, serving our wider community together. And why would it matter if we did? You'll have to answer that for yourself, for me, it's because of Jesus, who he was and how he lived, what he taught about the ways of God, which is the way of love in this world. And the world needs a lot of love right now, about the power of his presence, how, how I, how all of us have been blessed time and again with undeserved blessings that we don't even realize we've received. And how we've been given strength to face suffering and challenges. How we learn through him how to love sacrificially and to be part of a wider purpose. It matters because of what we've been given in the Episcopal Church. Which is not necessarily better or worse than what others have. But it's, it's distinctive and it's needed now. If we can sufficiently engage the world around us with what we have been entrusted with. It matters if we want our children to know that they are loved and valued beyond the messages that bombard them every day, that encourage them to measure their worth according to three A's, the three A's of our culture, what we accumulate, what we achieve, and how we appear. Rather than, as Martin Luther King famously said of his own children, rather than the content of their character. It matters because we, like our forebears, are called to be part of something that can heal this world from the nightmare, as our presiding bishop says, the nightmare that it often is, into the dream that God intends. And so, on this 75th anniversary St. David's, I, I ask you, would you rededicate yourselves to the path your forebears set before you, to commit to core practices again with one another of prayer, community, support, and together with me and your brothers and sisters across the diocese to face this moment and learn what it means in our time and in our place to love and to serve in Jesus' name. Amen.